This is Philip Meyer, welcoming you to another episode of Talking About Platforms. We present and discuss relevant discoveries from the field of platform research. Hi, I'm Daniel Trabucchi. In every episode, we have a guest sharing with us one of his or her latest papers on platforms to make it accessible for everyone. And with that, let's jump right into the conversation. So, welcome to a new episode of Talking About Platforms. Today, uh, our guest is Willi Letonwirta. Hi, Willi. Hello. Hi, Philip. And I'm also here with my usual co-host, Daniel. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Philip. Hi, Willi. So, as always, let me briefly introduce Willi. Um, Willi is professor, and I'm reading this from the university's website, a professor of economic sociology and digital social research at the Oxford Internet Institute, OII, University of Oxford. Um, and his research examines how digital technologies are used to reshape the organization of economic activities in society. And there, from gig platforms to online marketplaces and virtual currencies to crowdfunding. And I think this spans also very well Uh, the different topics that Willi's book that we are talking about today is all at least touching, if not covering. Um, but before we come to the book, Daniel, what would be the first question to Willi? Our usual question is a way to you know, start knowing the people we welcome in this podcast. All the people that come here talk about platforms, but not always. <laughs> really the same type of platforms. So the question is kind of twofold. What's a platform to you and how you end up studying and talking about platforms? Sure. Thanks, Daniel. That's a great question to start with. So I suppose, you know, in my first in my master's studies, I, I you know, I studied strategy. So I, at that time, the, 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 the theory of two-sided marketplaces was only uh, emerging. But my first sort of starting point in studying platforms is to think of marketplaces and two-sided marketplaces. But then I did a PhD in, uh, in economic sociology. And, uh, and that involved you know, a lot of economic history and a more sort of institutional perspective into, into how markets work, work. And I started seeing... Um, similar things elsewhere in history and in society to what we today call two-sided marketplaces on the internet. So I kind of started from, you know, eBay and, and App Store, and, uh, and I was studying uh, this sort of gray markets for virtual currencies in online games uh, 15 years ago. And I started, so I started from these kind of digital marketplaces that could be modeled as two-sided uh, platforms and, and how they work and then sort of expanded theoretically uh, uh, and uh, in terms of the kind of analogies that I draw to historical marketplaces, to historical markets, the role of the state in organizing markets and so on. Um, the platform is a institutional environment that uh, matches supply and demand by 
creating conditions for exchange, not necessarily mar market exchange structured by competition. It can also be a more sort of planned economy based on uh, algorithmic uh, matching, for instance. But I suppose in one sentence, you would say, I would say that a platform, it's an institutional environment, especially a digitally mediated institutional environment for enabling exchange. Thank you. I think that that leads very well to to today's core topic uh, of this of this episode, which is Billy's new book uh, that in the ebook version just launched a few days ago and recording this episode on September 19th. And the hardcover will be available from September 27th, hopefully uh, from September 27th. No, it, it, it will be. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the book. Uh, the title of the book is Cloud Empires, how digital platforms are overtaking the state and how we can regain control. It's published by um, the MIT Press um, and as said, uh, just out um, very, very recent and new work. Um, so I have to say that I read the, the book uh, cover to cover in, in two sittings. Uh, I just said it before we started the recording. Um, it really, it really caught me um, because Billy is doing, in my opinion, a very, very good job and a very novel job when it comes to uh, writing books about platforms, um, starting in, in in different times in history, in different concepts from economic or uh, political concepts, and always connecting this to very interesting platform-related stories, bringing the concepts into the like current times uh, of digital platforms uh, bringing the two together and really discussing um, maybe origins and then also implications uh, around these these two the historical perspective and the concept in the in the digital platform uh, economy um, but i'm not the best person here in this call to explain uh, the book um, why another book about platform and why that type of of book that that it became um, Willy, please help me out. Uh, introduce sure. your your great work and 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 maybe why you thought there's room and need for another book about platforms. Thanks very much, Philip, and I'm really glad glad the sort of uh, story uh, telling infused with theory sort of approach worked for you. So one way of kind of explaining why I, why I uh, wrote this book is to um, start from the fact that, you know, I teach graduate students at the Oxford Internet Institute. Um, and a lot of my students, they go on to work on in big tech, right? In, in Google and Amazon and so on. And one of them emailed me a few years ago and he wrote, and I, you know, I paraphrase a little, but he essentially wrote that, you know, I asked, I'm asking you, I'm writing to you to ask for suggestions. Um, I'm now doing product management for uh, a major platform. Uh, we have hundreds of millions of members. They're doing different sorts of economic activities. I think there's a similarity between how our company manages its members and how governments manage citizens. 
I'd be really grateful if you could point out some books and articles on national governance frameworks, how governments manage their populations, etc., so we can improve our product design. And so he thought that uh, that he'd, he'd noticed through his work at a major platform company that there's something similar about a platform and a government. And I think a lot of people are starting to notice this. Mm. There was a story in The Economist uh, titled, Is Microsoft the Digital Nation and Does It Have a Secretary of State? Um, there was a story in The Atlantic titled, Apple is basically a small country now. Um, and there was a there was a column uh, in the Guardian. Uh, who needs government when you've got Amazon to keep these running? And even Facebook uh, founder Mark Zuckerberg himself, as you may remember, he once mused that Facebook is more like a government than a traditional company now. And uh, and so I think this is super interesting. Why are people starting to see these uh, analogies? And it's it's a little bit troubling as well, right? Because the, the leaders of these companies and the administrators that run these platforms, they have immense power now, uh, but without a commensurate level of accountability. So they can set the rules that consumers and small businesses that use these platforms in, to, make, to make a living, uh, they can set the rules that people have to follow and they, they enforce those rules and that's great because that way they create create conditions for exchange and they create conditions for business to flourish and for people to sell apps and, uh, and, and services and whatnot. But they've also been discovered abusing this power, right? So um, as soon as I talk about the book, how, how as soon as Amazon became, Amazon was first, it was regarded by book publishers as a sort of, uh, a, a digital revolutionary and Jeff Bezos was considered their hero because he allowed them to bypass brick and mortar um, uh, gatekeepers. Um, but as soon as Amazon became so big that publishers couldn't afford to be off Amazon anymore, then Bezos instructed his managers to change their approach in what was known as Project Cheetah. He instructed managers to go after the publishers like a cheetah would pursue a sickly gazelle. So they basically shake down the publishers, tell them, you know, provide us with better terms, uh, let us capture a larger share of your surplus. If you don't, we're going to start messing with your sales. So they do things like uh, stop showing books in recommendations and, and, and forward customers to the competitors books instead and, and this sort of stuff until the the customer uh, until the publisher is essentially complied and let Amazon tax away all their profits um, Apple's been doing things like uh, you know famous example when um, for years Spotify was the top music app on Apple App Store and then Apple introduces its own own competitor called Apple Music. And the very next day, suddenly, when you search for music on Apple App Store, you no longer see Spotify. Spotify used to be a top number one result. Now it's not the second, it's not the third, it's the 23rd result. 
Uh, and so Apple abused its power to set the rules of the marketplace to basically make a competitor disappear. So in a way, the, the book is an attempt to grapple with the question of how did we end up here? Because I'm old enough to remember when the internet was supposed to free us from gatekeepers. It was supposed to free us from abusive institutions uh, that could uh, control people's lives and, and, and business. You know, It was supposed to birth this new social fabric based on self-organizing networks and communities and democratized markets and so on. Visionaries like Marshall McLuhan promised that we'd all be living in a sort of global village uh, in the electronic era. Uh, but now that everyone's finally online, the scenery looks very different from a village, right? Um, it looks almost like we're being managed by a government again, except that this time we don't even get to vote for the leaders. And so the question is, why did things turn out this way? Why was the sort of original promise of, of the internet betrayed? And what's to be done about it? And uh, in, in the book, in, in, in Cloud Empires, in each of the chapters, I basically tell the story of an influential person uh, and a platform, an iconic platform, that helped to shape today's platform economy from household names like Jeff Bezos to uh, and, and we've got Pira Media, our founder of eBay. There, there, there's Upwork, there's, uh, there's Ross Ulbricht, the creator of Silk Road, the darkness, darknet drug marketplace, as well as lesser known figures like uh, Christy Milland, uh, a digital labor organizer who's tried to resist this order. And, uh, I basically use their stories to trace the evolving institutional structure of electronic commerce, of, of the digital economy, starting from sort of decentralized cyber bazaars of the 1980s, leading up all the way to today's uh, monopolistic mega platform. And um, I'm using the the struggles and triumphs of the triumphs of the protagonists in these stories to illustrate social and economic forces using social social science theory um, that basically uh, explain why we've ended up with the platform economy that we've ended up with and i'm hoping that that will provide lessons to all of the people who would like to alter this state of affairs whether through program code or through political action. That's basically the, 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 in a nutshell, why I wrote the book and what I want to achieve with it. Very good. Thank you so much. Um, I think we will come to talk about some of the lessons uh, a bit, a bit later. Um, first, what, what I was wondering, um, as you said, you're telling the stories about um, very interesting individuals who started and, and grew platforms or play another role on the platforms but i'd like to focus on those who started and now rule or ruled platforms for a long while and i was wondering why do you think are so many of them if not all of them that you discuss in the book coming from these libertarian political mm. perspectives to like start this endeavor um 
And then, I mean, during the story, that's the interesting part, they figure out that they get closer and closer to the complete opposite political perspective at some point. Um, but maybe before we come to that, question would be, why do you think these like these figures uh, started kind of this this platform endeavors in the first place? Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting question, right? So a lot of the internet pioneers they hold sort of cyber libertarian beliefs, right? So they believe in individual liberty and in freedom from uh, top-down control. They uh, they believe in the power of technology to achieve a sort of uh, a, a utopian society of of their um, of their dreaming. And so, yeah. So the question is, why are the internet um, sort of pioneers and the founders predominantly or, or disproportionately like this? Is there a selection effect so that people, I think it's partly that, right? So people who are, who hold this kind of iconoclastic beliefs, they want to change the world. They're the ones who set out to build a platform to, to really do something big. You know, Pierre Omidia, founder of eBay, he very explicitly, you know, he, he said that he, he you know, he was, an, he was a, uh, a French Iranian uh, immigrant in the US and, um, he believed in the the power of markets to uh, provide opportunities for outsiders like himself. But then he'd seen in Silicon Valley firsthand how uh, privileged access to 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 information and opportunities sort of um, uh, tilted the scales. And so he thought the internet could be used to create this level playing field where everyone had, had access to the same marketing information. Um, and so he he set out to do that, to build that. Maybe the insiders who were profiting from the current system were not as motivated to try to start anything like that. So that could explain it. Same with Ross Ulbricht, right? Founder of uh, Silk Road. He wanted to, to create a shadow economy outside the control of the state because he was, uh, uh, because of his values and, and because he believed drug use was a, a victimless crime. And, he wanted to overthrow the U.S. government, so I suppose I suppose there's a selection effect where people like this—they're the ones who end up um, trying these on. Oh, ended up doing these unconventional things in that particular moment in history, sort of '90s and early 2000s, where most of these pivotal platforms were founded. And then maybe it goes the other way around as well, right? So people who are get into digital technologies or got in the 90s 80s 90s early 2000s but people who sort of got in real deep got interested in the technology first and started learning the skills to build a platform they would be find themselves infused in this cyber culture which was very libertarian in character so you know, for instance, if, if we go back to media, he joined the Usenet and he joined uh, electronic Electronic Frontier Foundation's Usenet groups, and you know, maybe he, by reading those, he kind of got radicalized a bit. Same with Ross Ulbricht; he was actually in high school. He was a believer in uh, Eastern philosophies. He was into sort of harmony and and mysticism and oneness and and more like uh, you know, kind of Buddhist infused. Uh, 
uh, ideology, which was less individualistic and more about sort of unity and harmony. Then he gets into into university to study, I think he studied crystallography, if I don't remember wrong, like physics, a very text subject. And he, you know, he, he gets on the internet and, and, and there he, he starts getting radicalized into a sort of libertarian mindset. So I think it goes both ways. The, found, the iconoclasts who try to do something bold and build a platform that changes the entire way economies are organized, they have to be uh, a little bit at the edges of the political spectrum to begin with, to be so iconoclastic. But then also, at least it used to be the case that when they do then enter those circles where that kind of things are developed, then the, the prevailing culture there is quite libertarian. Sorry, kind of long-winded answer to your question, but I think it's just uh, something that I haven't actually, I don't think anyone's thought about much before. I think that could even be a topic for a paper, seriously. You know, uh, I was thinking about your answer and the very beginning of Philip's question. So this shift that these uh, companies went through. And uh, I found myself very often thinking uh, at the early days of these companies when they had uh, very innovative uh, ideas in their hands, in their minds, which were often pretty radical to a certain extent, but also narrow in a given uh, field, in a given industry or in a given space. And then they took off they became enormous, they became global, they became what they are today. When and why, in your opinion, there was this shift, uh, not really in the business of those companies, but in the mind of, uh, of the founders, of the people mm -hmm. you are writing about in the book? So there is a kind of selection effect here where some people, So the people, they start their platform with a very radical vision. They want to enable um, a cyber libertarian economy where there's no top-down authority, no regulation. People are kind of free to do whatever they want to and, and will usher in a new economic order. And some people, they stay true to that vision. Um, but those platforms, they never scaled. That's my main, that's that's basically my contribution to the debate. I'm saying because the the leading theory is sort of to say oh they sold out, you know? They saw the opportunity to the founders they started with sincere uh beliefs and objectives in mind, but then at some point they kind of sold out on their values and began to make money instead. And that's why the internet now is controlled by these gatekeepers and, and we have problems with monopolists and abusive platform princes, as I call them, right? So this is a kind of evil man theory of what went wrong with the internet. And I'm saying that the evil man theory is too simplistic because there are founders who stayed true to their beliefs, but the trouble is their platforms didn't scale. And the platforms that scaled, they are the ones where the founders made that flip from uh, libertarian and no, no uh, top-down control into essentially uh, uh, reproducing the government-style uh, uh, government uh, 
and top-down enforcement of contracts and property rights and and market regulations that prevent market failures. And this process was often incremental, right? So if we take the examples of example of eBay and Pierre Media, he very reluctantly, you know, every time the market broke, his platform broke in some way, then he very reluctantly introduced some intervention to do something about it. So, you know, when people started at first, you could you could list items in the marketplace without creating a user account. Can you can you imagine that? Or you could you could bid on things. Like there was there were no user accounts. You didn't have to register in the database. Because in the 90s, the internet was, you know, you the, there were no identities in the internet, right? It was all anonymous, right? And it was very controversial then when he said, so then, well, then things started breaking because people started scamming each other, right? And then he he emailed, they started emailing Omidyar and saying, hey, um, you got to fix this. Like, I got scammed. And he's like, no, no, man, I'm not involved. I don't want to be some authority who decides what's right, what's wrong, right? Um, so he then very reluctantly, he created this feature where he asked like, okay, 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 everyone, now you need to register, you need to create a user account so we can keep track of kind of who's who. And we're going to create this uh, uh, feedback system. And then people can see how you've behaved in the past. And then this reputation system should keep people honest. So he kind of did that kind of in response to a crisis. And that was the first step, because now you're monitoring people. Now you're assigning uh, identities to them, you're putting them in a database. Um, then next step is that starts breaking down in various different ways. And he has to introduce even more intervention and more intervention until uh, it's basically, uh, uh, he then he admits that we've had to, you know, in, a, in an interview uh, six years after the founding of the platform, he says, yeah, we have to kind of evolve a bit from the original model where the market was placed based on this community into a model where we sort of take a more top-down proactive approach to actually policing the marketplace. So he ended up becoming the authority, the police force that he had been trying to make obsolete. And every step of the way he was forced to do that because otherwise the, the a market failure would have um, if not entirely disintegrated the platform, at least constrained its growth. What I think is is very interesting. So where are we where are we heading? Um, mm. And I think you mentioned with regard to the to the example of Upwork um, that you that you introduced and 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 where you did a lot of research um, on. There you show that there's this like huge bundling these these platforms did over time, uh, where they really control the whole interaction end to end. Um, and I think you compared it with in the past having a multiple of or a multitude of different mm. vendors and and services. One was connecting uh, the different parties. The other one was like uh, managing the 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 financial flow. The third one was uh, providing additional tools and then it all came together to like upwork um providing the service end to end that's right yeah so and 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 here's where i think there's a there is interesting analogy also to medieval europe here but yeah basically if you look at in the early 90s still how or mid 90s even how uh exchange market exchange on the internet worked 
you'd have one service for matching, right? So you'd go, like, for instance, for jobs, you, there was a job board on Usenet. So you'd go there, uh, find a job opportunity, or you find a, a contractor for yourself. Um, and then you'd have a different website where you could post uh, money in an escrow to to secure it, to provide trust for the relationship, right? To secure it. And then if things went wrong, the contractor didn't deliver or the, the, the client didn't pay, then you'd have a third website, an arbitration service, where you could go and, and have the case, uh, 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 the dispute resolved and, and somebody would actually decide who should get the money uh, from the escrow service. And uh, this is obviously kind of, you know, it, 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 it's good in the sense that it's decentralized and nobody is in, in overall charge. So there's little less risk of somebody sort of, of the authority, the institutions then abusing their power. But the trouble is it's kind of the transaction costs are really high and uh, the it's it's very difficult actually then when these institutions are different institutions are not integrated the the matching institution and the the uh, and uh, escrow and the actual dispute resolution where they're not integrated information doesn't flow there's no consistent user identity across across all of them it's very difficult actually then to enforce uh, the contract and uh, so what platforms like upwork did piece by piece they started bundling these institutions like you said so it, to the extent that now if you go to Upwork, it's it's the whole set of services in a way. You know, it, it's it's everything. It's it's uh, it's um, market information categorization, very basic things like uh, assigning uh, people into different occupations and then matching, helping them find matches, uh, monitoring, um, and then enforcing that contract. And so the analogy here, and then you get this uh, wonderful economies of scope. Economies of scope is one way of kind of conceptualizing what's going on there. And it's very difficult then for kind of decentralized uh, um, sort of like a matrix of institutions in the style of the 80s and 90s to compete that with anymore. So then people use a, a centralized platform like that, even though it costs more. And so the analogy here, historical analogy here, is uh, essentially the, the the rise of uh, nation states, um, because in in pre-modern Europe, and this is generalizing now a lot and, and, and cutting corners, but a stylized set of facts is that in pre-modern Europe, you had this uh, patchwork of different institutions that were not particularly integrated or or uh, um, coordinated. So you'd have the state such as it was, it was just the, the feudal lord's estate, and it was mainly concerned with protection of uh, nobles, protect property rights in land, and in the laborers, who the, the peasants who worked the land. They're not particularly concerned with commercial disputes. Then you had... Uh, a separate set of institutions. You had um, market towns with with market courts that could adjudicate commercial disputes. 
you had guilds which regulated markets. They regulated market entry uh, product quality. Um, and also they provided uh, a system of vocational education, how you, you enter an occupation as an apprentice and progress to a journeyman and then eventually get licensed as a master. Um, then you had merchant guilds, which regulated long distance trade and uh, to some extent enforced contracts in long distance trade. Um, then you had the peasants' own courts for smaller disputes. You had uh, the the, the pan-European Catholic Church, which provided uh, what passed for higher education and social protection. And so, and all of these institutions are kind of overlapping in authority and jurisdiction, and disconnected. And a, a person might have to kind of deal with multiple different uh, institutions to actually. Uh, carry out business or just to conduct a life um, and then what happened was one one story of how one kind of theory Tilly's sort of uh, a war theory of uh, nation state formation is that how do we get from this disintegrated jumble of institutions which by the way they were often in war with each other right you'd have the the, the, the market towns fighting with the feudal lords fighting with the the bishops and the peasants uprising as well and, and and no overall authority it's this patchwork of institutions so how do we get from that to a sort of nation state model where you have a centralized government and all the key institutions are sort of government departments they are hierarchically organized under an overall government and they're all integrated with a population registry and with a, a single code of laws that applies to everyone and not so the different laws apply depending on whether you're a peasant or a lord or a bishop or a scholar. So how do we get from this to the nation state integrated uh, uh, model? Um, Tilly's theory is that basically because European states then they started, they, they fought a lot in the 18th and 19th centuries or really from the 17th 18th 19th centuries onwards and these kind of disintegrated uh patchworks of institutions realms that were organized like that they lost out to realms that were organized into uh, and more centralized and coordinated institutions, with lots of with lots of which produced lots of economies of scope, because they were better able to uh, recruit manpower for war, and and they were better able to raise taxes, and they just had a stronger economy. So, so it was sort of like a natural selection model of the evolution of institutions from decentralized patchworks to centralized uh, uh, government. Well, that's very interesting, and uh, I found your book extremely fascinating. Let's try to sum up uh, uh, the main elements we put on the table so far. We talked about this shift from a very liberal perspective of these platforms at first, even internet at first, and their now role as almost governs in, uh, in, in managing what's happening on them. We talked about uh, the role that scale played in this transition, and then you add the role that economies of scope 
played in this transition. Now I have a question regarding the present of platforms. We can see many giant platforms that are actually uh, managing and uh, organizing extremely valuable flows, but also a significant number of relevant platforms that are not that huge, that for sure went for some economies of, uh, of scope, integrating services in, into them, but are not yet at that level. My question is, do you believe that this shift is uh, existing for all the platforms? It's like embedded in the idea of platform, or if we stay at a smaller scale, we deal with platforms that are not that wide or are constrained by some dimension, we can still believe in the platform model without uh, overcoming and entering in the government-like world. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And I, I think that is, it is totally possible. And I think the platform competition literature here uh, has, has taught me a lot. So as you know, platforms can, e even in a, a platform market with sort of positive feedback loops and uh, tendency to tip towards a single dominant player, it's still possible for smaller platforms to survive if, for instance, they focus on a particular niche, whether that's a particular set of customer needs or a, a particular local area in the case of platforms that benefit from uh, local network effects. And, uh, and that way they can, uh, they can, they can carve out a, a platform, a, a niche that may be defensible from the, uh, the greater network effects generated by uh, the bigger platform. And um, this is a little bit like, uh, you know, the, I, the, the kind of, again, the medieval analogy, I suppose, would be, uh, or, or kind of moving from medieval to modern uh, Europe, the analogy would be, I'm, I'm right now, I'm speaking from a hotel room in Zurich. And Switzerland uh, is famously, it's, it's uh, sort of well defended by mountain ranges and other natural features, which has allowed, despite its uh, relatively small size to remain an independent state, even as there was a huge consolidation going on next door, the um, the uh, the different sort of Germanic Saxon states, the principalities uh, combining to the Holy Roman Empire, and then eventually to the German Empire, and likewise the the French uh, state. Uh, forming, uh, emerging from a patchwork of different domains, Savoy and Bretagne and, and all these places that actually had very little to do with each other, including not having a, even a common language. But these sort of economies of scale and scope, to some extent, help to uh, explain why the most stable institutional model for these regions was in fact this large centralized government and yet switzerland was able to stay uh, outside all of that and, and i think that's partly because of these uh these uh kind of defenses that they had historians will be able to add uh, obviously a lot more detail to my very stylized analogy 
but I think that's that's somewhat similar to how some platforms are able to kind of create a even if they're smaller if they if they are able to uh, carve a moat around themselves that's deep enough or a mountain range that's high enough then they can uh, sustain a position in the market and in fact I've got a a paper in review right now with um, Reischauer Georg Reischauer and uh, Nicholas Friederici where we are looking at the question of okay if if platforms benefit from network effects then how come in Europe we actually see in many markets we see a lot of smaller platforms right existing and persisting despite despite uh, competition from a dom- from a larger a global player and we one explanation that we provide is precisely that in some markets what matters is not the size of your global network effects like if you are an app store then it absolutely global network effects absolutely matter because for a for an app developer app developer doesn't care how many app users there are locally in their city what they care about is what's the total size of the market that i can address through this platform and vice versa for the app buyers. But if it's a food delivery platform, then the consumer totally doesn't care how many restaurants you have in London. They only care about how many restaurants you have in Zurich, if Zurich is where you're located in. And that allows if a local player manages to build a thick enough network in the the local uh, uh, environment uh, that provides them with a great defensive wall against a, a larger well-resourced better resourced global player that has a larger global installed base that may allow them to to keep holding on to that niche i think in business in general people have for a long time emphasized the schumpeterian view and emphasized the fact that we don't need to worry too much about um, market domination by a handful of companies because always some new innovation will come and um and 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 uh, turn the market upside down i think that um you know in my book i'm providing uh explanations for uh, why that might not be the case because actually you know we we have if you look at the market for something like social networking services 15 20 years ago there used to be a lot of schumpeterian revolutions going on in that market right so there was first there i don't even remember all of them but you know there was a first of leading one was friendster and then there was uh, myspace and there were, there were different there were many different cycles in that market that happened in the period of you know 6 7 years until facebook uh, achieved dominance and then after that, it's been 15 years and there's not been change. Okay, well, maybe if we wait long enough, another 15 years, another dominant player will uh, arrive. Or maybe not. I don't know. And I might not be alive anymore by the time. So, so you know, long, long, if it's long-term enough, is it... Uh, who, who, who was it? Was it... Um, Keynes, who said that in a long, sir, in the long run, we're all dead. So I'm not too interested in models that deal with things that happen too 
uh, long in the future. So that's why kind of in my book, I'm trying to provide actually some theoretical explanations also for, for stability mm-hmm. and for why uh, things might not change as much anymore unless we attack the problem from a completely different angle which is to say instead of trying to decentralize the actual platform it's it's sort of administration the operation or what i call the enforcement of the rules like this is what blockchain is trying to do let's decentralize the enforcement of the rules instead let's decentralize the production of the rules not the administration but the legislation and this is in fact exactly what we did in europe so we arrived at these centralized nation states where rules are enforced by a hierarchical government machinery but we decentralized the making of the rules through parliamentary democracy you know, building on what you are saying, uh, there is a book that I'm reading uh, while I'm finishing your book that pop up uh, to my mind. I don't know if you are familiar with all the purpose-driven uh, uh, literature and, and works. I'm reading Deep Purpose by um, Galati. And one of the very, Gulati, sorry, and one of the very first things you mentioned at the beginning of the book uh, is like the current society we live in uh, made extreme the belief that uh, firms must maximize the profit while is proposing this purpose-driven organization as an alternative to this this model, showing how firms that are actually pursuing a different kind of final goal can exist and be sustainable from an economic perspective. Do you see any link between the kind of reasoning you are doing and this kind of of way of thinking? Do you think there might be some, some sort of interdependence between these, uh, these two reasonings? Well, I'm not familiar with the purpose-driven approach as such, but of course, um, people are proposing to use and all, already have for uh, 10 years built things like platform cooperatives, right? So <clears throat> platforms that are run by owned and run by the users or workers or or some other stakeholder group on the platform and not necessarily for profit and you also have things like DAOs right which are uh, attempting to build uh, uh, platforms where the ownership is well more decentralized than but of course, in a publicly listed, um, Facebook also has a lot of owners. That's not that's not the that's not the a huge difference. In, in a sense. But yeah, there are a lot of attempts to build like um, alternative models of ownership uh, of platforms and, uh, and and governance as well. And that's great. But I suppose my what I would say about that, and I do say about that, is that um, 
we've of course this is not new right so we've tried to fix problems of capitalism and capital concentration and monopoly already uh, for 250 years with cooperatives right so there were a lot of socialist utopians who uh, started cooperative factories during the industrial revolution that say we we're going to create a cooperative that the whole town and the factory and everything will run it as a co-op right and it will be like a utopia and uh, and then we've got more modern co-ops you know i'm from finland originally and there are lots of co-ops in finland and you know these are all fine and these are good and they can provide sometimes better livelihoods or at least better lifestyles for the people who are involved in them but they've never sort of taken over the market they've never become the mainstream they haven't been able to compete away the primary uh, profit-driven model and as a result the vast majority of people in the world have to put up with the 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 profit-driven model and insofar as i'm concerned with what do we do for the vast majority i'm focusing more on how do we democratize and make accountable the big tech the the, the de facto public institutions of the digital economy instead of how do we build interesting but inevitably a little bit marginalized uh, models on the side yeah i think we we touched many different topics in this in this context today um we're already coming to an end of this of this episode unfortunately um and as we always open with the same question we also always close uh, with the same uh, but before i ask the question um i'd like to Uh, sneak in another idea in uh, to building on on what we just talked about. But I also found very interesting that multiple platform examples that you show in the book, they their growth kicked off during times when the global economy was weak or in a downturn, right? So when like enough people were in situations, economic situations, where there were in danger of being exploited and the need for almost any opportunity they can get, any free good they can get, and any kind of quote-unquote efficiency they can bring into their lives, right? Um, and this was something that I also found very interesting um, that you that you showed in in your work, that this is there's actually an, a connection. And this then also uh, might be connected to questions of what nation-states can do make sure that people are not in these situations or like put them better off um to at least like put the barrier for these companies to exploit the people or the small small companies a bit higher for them right um yeah so so much um about that um and coming to the to the end um we haven't talked too much about the The political recommendations um, that you that you outlined in your book, but I would say, I think we teased enough so that people are very interested in reading about them, buying the book, and actually reading about them. And 
I would say this doesn't have to be the last time to have you on the podcast, really. So maybe next time we focus a bit more on on implication um, on the political implications. Um, but for now, um, last question would be: In your opinion, or what are you working on, um, and where do you see what's next in the world of of platforms, and then the like with the focus on the research world of platforms? So I'm working on two things which I think uh, are, are something that uh, other people are also starting to get interested in. So one is the role of things like business associations and uh, organizations that combine complementers, so small businesses or, or, or freelancers or, or other groups who make a living on the platforms and allow them to negotiate on a more even footing with the owners of the platform companies. Because individually, the businesses are completely helpless to change the rules. But as I show in cloud empires, when they join together, they can sometimes put enough pressure on the platform princes to actually change the rules uh, in their favor. And I think Uh, we can see examples of more and more businesses realizing this, like uh, 20,000 sellers on Etsy, the e-commerce platform, went on strike a few months ago. Uh, and I, I don't think this is the last uh, such case. So businesses are realizing that actually they're, they need to do this as a matter of sort of strategic uh, uh, performance, uh, really. So I'd like to see more research on this. Um, and then the second thing is the role of shareholder activism so the these big tech they are they are publicly listed companies and their shareholders in the same way as shareholders in the past have sometimes activist shareholders have campaigned for things like environmental sustainability policies to be adopted in firms now their shareholders are uh, in some cases campaigning for Uh, policies that would uh, that are related to sort of more ethical use of technology, and uh, I'm really curious about this. And we're sort of trying to document this phenomenon, and collect some statistics on it, and to see how effectual or otherwise it is. And actually, at the moment, it looks like uh, in tech companies, it's uniquely ineffective because tech companies seem to have much more concentrated centralized governance, uh, corporate governance arrangements uh, on average than other publicly listed companies, which I think is fascinating. Thank you for sharing. Um, and yeah, with that, um, I have to say again, I think you have written a, a phenomenal book. Um, I started with the question, why another book about platforms? And I have to correct myself. It's not just another book uh, about platforms. It's a different, it's a different book and I can only I recommend everyone who's interested in a topic to um, yeah, be open to, to this additional new and very interesting perspective. Um, really, if people read the book or think what we talked about today is so interesting that they want to reach out or follow your work, what's the yeah. best to, to find you online? So uh, I'm on Twitter as Vili uh, Led on Virta or uh, at Vili Led. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Facebook, and I also love to receive email. I very much enjoyed today's conversation. Thank you so much for joining us, Willy, and just the best for, 
for the yeah, hardcover launch and everything that's coming uh, around the book. Thank you so much, Philip and Daniel. It was a fascinating discussion. And yeah, I'd love to continue the conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talking About Platforms. To support our work, you can rate the episode or leave a comment on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to hit the follow button so you don't miss out to the coming episodes. If you want to look up at the papers we have discussed or other topics we addressed, visit talkingaboutplatforms.com. There you can find the show notes and get in touch with us. Until next time, when we're again talking about platforms.